You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to the Art of History podcast. My name is Amanda Matta. I have a degree in art history, a cup of jasmine green tea on my desk, and I think that's all that you need in order to qualify as a podcast host. So that must mean we are here today to have a look at history through the lens of the art world. Typically, I will do this by selecting, you know, a single work of art, a painting or sculpture or what have you. Um, But today we are actually going to take a much broader look at art history because we are joined by Jennifer Higgy, author of the recent book, The Other Side, A Story of Women in Art and the Spirit World. Jennifer is an Australian writer who lives in London and was previously the editor of Freeze magazine. That is Freeze spelled F-R-I-E-Z-E, which you might remember from your survey of Western art vocabulary list. Jennifer's book, which is out this week, is, quote, the first major work of art history to focus on women artists and their engagement with the spirit world. After last month's episode on Hildegard von Bingen, you can, I'm sure, imagine why I was so excited to conduct this interview, to get to pick her brain, Um, and I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation. It is, I mean, sometimes I listen back to episodes while I'm editing, and, you know, usually it's just me talking, so it's easy to tune out. But as I was going through the meat of this episode and, and trimming it and all that, I was just pulled right back in. I was hearing things that I didn't hear the first time. Um, It's a real treat, so I hope you enjoy. I will, as always, be posting some supplemental images over on the Instagram, um, including some of the female artists that we discuss and their works of art, so be sure to go check that out. The Instagram is at Art of History Podcast. Kirkus Reviews calls the other side, quote, an illuminating commentary on much more than art, demonstrating how new ideas and cultural shifts take hold. You can get The Other Side today, wherever books are sold, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation with the author, Jennifer Higgy. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, Your book, The Other Side, explores the lives and work of female artists who sought to communicate with and learn from other dimensions. And it sounds like that's a very personal topic for you. So I'm curious what drew you to that subject matter and just tell us about your book. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, this book came out of a very particular moment in my life, I guess, when I had finished a job that I'd been doing for more than two decades, which was at Freeze Magazine as an editor. And, um, you know, and then, of course, the lockdown happened mm. and in Australia, where I'm from, and there'd been terrible bushfires. And so it was a time of sort of great reflection for me. And, and I guess I was looking for different kinds of enchantment in my life or a renewal of interest in art, especially in that I'd been so immersed in art for so long, but I'd been working at such a pace that I sort of needed to slow down and relook at how, how I was looking at, at the world, at, at art, at myself. Um, yeah. And so, um, and also a big part of my um, writing and sort of focus of the last few years has been the exclusions of art history, mm. you know, whether it's um, women or people of colour or, or working class people or people of different genders or sexualities. And so I w became very interested in what I sort of stumbled across, which was that there was this enormous group of women who were involved in spiritualism and spirituality in the 19th century. And their work as artists really led into surrealism and abstraction that it had sort of been written out of the canon. So I wanted to dive in and find out who these people were. So very long-winded answer to your, <laughs> your question, which is essentially it was about rediscovering myself and also looking at um, art history. And I think that's something a lot of people, women especially, can relate to from the past few years. I know you discuss this a little bit in your book, but there's been a resurgence of these spiritual movements. Mm. Um, I'm specifically thinking of like witch talk being mm. on the rise um, as like a trending search topic. If you're comfortable telling us, is it just in the art world that that manifested for you? Or can you comment on like some of the other ways that people have been returning to the otherworldly? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my focus is been in the art world because that's sort of my community I guess mm -hmm. but um, you know it's really fascinating that I think you know women especially have been looking for new ways of understanding the world um, one that possibly have origins in um, pre-patriarchal structures as well um, and pre um, uh, sort of commercial structures in a way or mm. um, what's the word I'm thinking of um, capitalism. Mm, sure. <laughs> That's the word I'm thinking of. Um, yeah, sort of pre-capitalistic um, structures as well. And I think, you know, it's a very particular moment where we're in now where there's been, you know, obviously there's a climate crisis, there's a great distrust now in governments, in powers that be. And, you know, this idea that so-called rationalism has got us to this point, well, maybe there are different ways of thinking rationally around what meaning is in the world and how we create it that are outside the structures that we were believe we were led to believe were the ones that you know were the correct ones or the rational ones absolutely yeah and when it comes to making meaning that is i think where the arts are so powerful mm -hmm. um so you do write in just the prologue to the other side um that quote unquote the spirit world has shaped art for millennia which we don't always think about some of the trends in art history as pertaining to the spirit world because I think mm. that phrase like connotes something I don't know the phrase my mom uses is it's something a little woo woo you know it's it's <laughs> it is otherworldly and it's mm. sometimes we talk about it in hushed tones so can you walk us through what that looks like over time is the spirit world 
I mean, is it there from the beginning of humans making mm. art? I mean, I use the term in a very general way. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a, a term that can encompass, you know, everything from witchcraft to organized religions mm-hmm. to the spiritual churches that sprung up in the 19th century to, you know, a vague belief in dreams or premonitions, you know. So it, basically my definition of it is um, something that is is exists possibly in another realm that can help lend meaning to our lives. And so if we look at pre-modern art, I mean, essentially religion um, in various forms was the major motivating factor because artists um, before the sort of individualism of the 20th and 21st centuries, they were mainly working on commissions. And so often these the very rich um, uh, people came from, say, the church, if you look at the Renaissance mm. and how the church was very instrumental in you know, shaping the direction of art, and also very wealthy families such as the Medicis, um, many of whom were very interested in exploring new ways of understanding the world. Um, they were also interested in philosophy and um, the dark arts or um, uh, occult sciences. And important to remember that the word occult came from simply meaning um, unknown knowledge or hidden knowledge. You know, if we look at, say, the Renaissance, I mean, obviously, many of the great paintings of the Renaissance have a biblical theme. But, you know, many of them, if we look at it through the 21st century lens, are totally surreal. You know, it's people transforming into other animals or, Mm -hmm. or into strange states of being, because, of course, they were also influenced by the Greek myths, which really influenced classicism. Um, You know, we've got um, the transformations, the various transformations that Christ went through and the various saints. I mean, there's constantly a kind of magical transformation happening in in um, the great paintings of the Renaissance. And, you know, earlier, of course, it was also most art was directed by, you know, the Bible in the West, of course, I'm speaking about because, of course, there are First Nations communities all around the world who are, who have made extraordinary art for, you know, well, in Australia, where I'm from, for 60,000 years that right. have been directed by um, mythical beings and ancestral stories and wisdom and of course in prehistory there are amazing sculptures and uh, and some paintings that have have, have emerged mm. um, from prehistory but we don't know what people in prehistory worshipped but there are objects that look to our eyes as if they may have been um, sacred objects but perhaps we're imposing our belief systems upon them I'm not sure Right. It's it's hard to know what the original intent for an mm. object was, um, exactly. whether that's a, a piece of visual art, like a painting or something that would have been, you know, used in, mm. in like you're holding it in your hands. Um, so I'll ask, what do you think when we're purely because so much of art history in textbooks, at least for a while, it's focused on the visuals. What do you think we gain when we go deeper and we seek to understand like the spiritual element that a work of art may have been almost infused with when it was created. Do you think it's possible to separate those two things when you're considering a work of art, the the form from the intent? Mm. I mean, that's a great question. And, you know, it's one that I think is at the heart of art history and that, you know, unless an artist was very explicit in writing down what their intentions were with mm. the work of art, we really have no idea what their intentions were, except for what we can see 
and interpret. And that's why, you know, that's one of the beauties of art history, that it's an imprecise science. Mm. And it's so open to interpretation, um, be that cultural or individual um, or art historical, you know, placing it against other works that were being made at the same time. Um, And to me, that's one of the beauties of looking at art in that we can't know fully the intentions of an artist. And I think that, you know, I'm a great believer in, you know, looking at art as if it's not um, sort of, excuse the pun, carved in stone, Mm. you know, that it is um, an open language that we are, the artist is inviting us in to interpret it as we will and almost as we need it. You know, I mean, you can look at, say, a beautiful painting, I don't know, like a Vermeer. Mm. And on the one hand, this seems like an image of solace and beauty and calm, like a woman reading a letter by a window. But on the other hand, Vermeer was painting in the midst of a hundred years war Mm. when pretty much the whole of Europe was at war. So then that changes our reading of it. Um, Sometimes we don't know anything about the artist who created a work of art, such as the great Renaissance painter Giorgione, who painted one of the first sort of narrative paintings in art history that we really don't know what it's about. Mm. It shows a man and a woman separated by a cavern in the, in the, in the earth. We don't know what it's about, mm. but we can keep looking at these things and interacting with them and, and take from them what we need and what might be interesting to learn about them too. Yeah, I love that about art history. It, it it can become a conversation because you're not just learning about the artist and their intent. But yeah, it is, like you said, it's what we can take from it. Mm. And those two things could be vastly different based on where we are in our lives. Um, so that's a conversation that comes up a lot, especially when we're talking about contemporary art, where um, we're not often looking at you know, it's not a still life. It's not a skull and a cup and a candlestick. We're t- thinking about things that they kind of transcend that physical form. So mm. really quickly, um, since we're kind of taking this walk through art history, mm. um, how has the spiritual realm, the otherworldly manifested when we think about something like modern and contemporary art? Yeah, well, I mean, the idea that modern art had uh, partly had its origins in um, spiritual realms was slightly excised from art history. It was this mm. idea that modernity was something that was cool and rational and formal right. and stripped of all the old sort of mis- supposedly misguided belief systems. But when we really dig into that, it's, it's, it's an incorrect reading of, mm. of what the early impulse of modernity were. And modernity essentially came out of, in the West again, of a society that is rapidly changing. Mm. You know, suddenly there are trains so people can move swiftly across great continents. Um, there are new inventions such as the x-ray when people can look inside someone whereas normally you could never previously you could never have looked inside someone you can send a telegram across the seas words can fly across the ocean and um, so at this time of sort of massive change artists too are looking at ways of understanding and interpreting the world and many of these artists were influenced by the kind of spiritualism that was very popular in the late 19th century, such as theosophy, which called itself a science of religion. Mm. And theosophists were very interested in developments in science and also very interested in, um, for the first time in the West, in ideas that were coming from the East, such as Buddhism or Hinduism. Um, And uh, 
so they were looking at different ways of understanding the world and different ways of representing it. And then in 1912, we have Vasily Kandinsky, who was for too long really credited with creating one of the first sort of purely abstract paintings in 1911. Um, he writes on the spiritual in art. And in this piece of writing, which was enormously influential, you've got people like Marcel Duchamp translating it into French so that he can distribute it among his family. Um, people are really looking at different ways of understanding other realms. Like if you can send words across an ocean, if you can look inside a body, if you can, you know, if the atom is discovered, for example, well, maybe there are other magical realms such as time is imperfect as, or our understanding of it is, like so many physicists were saying, so that, well, maybe if, if we don't fully understand time, well, that might mean that there are fabrics in, uh, tears in the fabric of time, so we can communicate with the dead, for example. Mm. Um, but before, um, you know, the very famous artists who were very influential in terms of spiritualism on modernity, such as Vasily Kandinsky, Piet Mondrian, Paul Klee, you've actually got this group of women in the 19th century. Um, I'm sure many of you in the States would have heard of Hilmarath Klint, mm -hmm. who had still the best-selling show at the Guggenheim mm -hmm. um, in 2018. And she was, she was very clear that she was communicating directly with spirits who were helping her create this ex these extraordinary paintings that she was making you know, in 1906, 1907, right up until 1915. And even earlier in London, you've got extraordinary artists such as Georgiana Houghton, mm. who in the 1860s are communicating with spirits. And she was sort of like a cosmic Jackson Pollock. Mm -hmm. So, um, but these are just a few of the examples. Right. So that's the, the meat of your work in The Other Side, spotlighting female artists who interacted you know, in some way with the spiritual realm in their various creative pursuits. Mm. Um, so why to you is placing that feminist lens over top of this conversation important? Is it purely because, as you just noted, they were mm. often the ones pioneering this concern with the otherworldly? What about this conversation resonates so much with mm. you? Well, I mean, firstly, it's important to remember that art history is a work in progress. Mm -hmm. You know, it's never a static sort of set of beliefs or you know the canon is a shape-shifting being and you know for too long art history was a story written by white men about other white men now as we know everyone you know all of humanity creates art and art history should be a reflection of art as a human impulse both to make it and look at it and if we have a heart an art history that doesn't include the extraordinary contributions of women, well, it's a false history then. Mm. And, um, you know, and of course there have been amazing, there has been amazing work done, especially over the last 50 years with um, extraordinary art historian feminists such as Linda Nochlin, um, Griselda Pollock and others, you know, who have been exploring this. So, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> but, um, you know, Apart from anything else, these are fascinating stories. Mm. These are, you know, stories that look at women in the 19th century when they had no political agency. There was nowhere in the 19th century where women had the vote, you know. So they had no political agency. Mm. They were in the main um, strongly controlled by their fathers, their husbands, their, their, their brothers, their sons. And so for them to carve out um, a space in this world 
to commune with each other and to create works of extraordinary power. I mean, these are amazing women and these are stories that deserve to be told. I absolutely agree with you. So <laughs> what about the spiritual realm then do you think mm. uh, is so alluring to women in these times? They're interacting with the otherworldly, not just in you know the pursuit of creating art, but really to create meaning for their lives. What can you boil that down for us? I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll try and boil it down, but yeah. it's, there are so many threads in this story. Yeah. Um, um, spiritualism really began as a as a movement in the nineteenth century, in the mid nineteenth century, mm-hmm. with the Fox sisters in in the United States. And you know, there, there's often been a relationship between grief, I think, mm. and spiritualism. Sure. And, you know, if you look at this time in the United States, the Civil War had torn the country apart. Uh, more than 2% of the population of the United States was, you know, slaughtered on the battlefields. You know, there were terrible schisms around um, race um, and around gender. And the spiritualist church that sort of emerged out of this grief was actually and very interestingly, one of the few spaces that um, didn't discriminate um, in, ground, in terms of um, gender, race, or class. Mm-hmm. And so women, for the first time, were sort of included in spiritualist meetings, and their voices were heard, and many of them became great preachers, like the Fox Sisters, for example. Um, and um, you've got other, other, you know, extraordinary preachers such as Sojourner Truth, you know, who had born, who'd been born into enslavement and who had freed herself and her child and became, you know, a, a, a great orator around race and around gender. Um, and she was enormously, you know, influential in the spiritualist movement of the 19th century. And so women who, who were interested in that, who were trained in that, they started banding together and sort of combining their spiritualist beliefs with um, exploring new ways of representing this brave new world that they found themselves in. And um, so you've got, you know, groups like, um, you know, Hilmar F. Clint in Sweden, you've got Georgiana Houghton in the 19th century, you've got numerous artists in, the, in America as well. Um, you know, it, it really became such a sort of, there was such a mania for spiritualism, but that by the time of the First World War, again, another time of great grief, um, it was challenging the primacy of the Anglican Church in Britain, for example. So, um, you know, I think I think it was a space of empowerment for women. It was a space of collectivity for women and community. And, you know, there is also um, a discussion around uh, whether perhaps women felt comfortable saying, well, this isn't me making this work of art. I'm just the vessel through which a spirit is speaking because women had been so um, uh, put against in terms of expressing themselves, if they said that they were merely expressing uh, 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 the voice of a spirit, it sort of reneged on their responsibility, which maybe made it a bit easier for them on some level. Who knows? I don't know. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I buy it. Um, I'm thinking mm. of one episode on art of history um, that I love that I've done is about ghost photography in the mm. 19th century. And we discussed Mrs. Lincoln, Mary Todd Lincoln, mm. who was turned to spiritualism to process mm. her grief over losing her husband. And um, it's just fascinating to see the ways that we now look back on some of those mm. figures too, whether it's considering that they may have been a little deluded in their beliefs or on the flip side in, in the case of women who are, 
sort of gaining fame by interacting with the oh. otherworldly, they get labeled as, you know, grifters, as frauds. Hmm. Um, so it's fascinating that at the same time as this, I think we can agree is a very empowering time for women. It's mm. also a time when they become more stigmatized for this interaction with the spiritual world. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I made a decision in my book that I didn't want to cast judgment, you know, mm. who am I to know what they were going through in the 19th century or, you know, how to question the veracity of what they were expressing. And, you know, I'm a great believer in, you know, I, I'm fine with, whatever people want to believe as long as they don't inflict it upon anyone else and sure. you know don't become too dogmatic and so if this gave these women solace and if they it helped them nurture their creativity and help them find a community why not hmm. absolutely with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details so Women artists in particular, you note, have been t turning to the spiritual world for inspiration, like just as much as, if not more than some of their male counterparts. And you've named a few so far. Um, but you note that men interacting with the spiritual often receive much different treatment for doing mm. so. Um, sometimes they're outright praised for it, for their genius, while, mm. whereas the women either need to hide that as their inspiration or mm. are, like I just said, uh, kind of ridiculed for it or or mm. taken not as seriously so what are some examples that you can think of of that disparity and how I mean how do you explain that mm. difference in treatment I think the obvious one to talk about here is Hilma of Klimt mm. you know who was born in 1862 and as I mentioned earlier you know she had this huge blockbuster show at the Guggenheim and uh, much to everyone's surprise you know it became the best-selling mm. show the Guggenheim had ever staged and I think that partly that's because the pictures that she created under spirit guidance and later without the guidance of spirit. They're so just extraordinarily beautiful. You mm -hmm. don't have to know anything about her or art to appreciate just the sheer physical beauty of them. But, you know, there's been a lot of um, debate around why Hilma F. Clint, who was trained at art school in the 1880s in Stockholm, you know, so Stockholm was actually one of the first places to allow women to study in mm. their national institutions. Um, she was a professional artist. She was part of a group of artists in Stockholm. You know, she had won many prizes. She was living off her art. Why didn't she feel um, that she could talk about her secret spiritual work? Because the work that she was making money from was, I really love it, it but it was more conventional. You know, right. it was landscapes and portraits. Um, and... Um, I think there are quite a few different answers to that. And, of course, they're all speculative because we don't know for sure. But, um, you know, in Stockholm, yes, the women were allowed to go to art school. But at the same time, there were very strong societal expectations that when they finished at art school, they would marry, have children, you know, hang up, you know, hang up the palette and put on an apron. Um, now, Hilma F. Clint was a queer woman. Um, that's now well documented. She was partnered with for a while another artist called Anna Cassell. Hmm. I mean, you know, I can't imagine how difficult it must have been to be gay 
as a woman in the late 19th century. Right. Um, so that's one reason for, you know, women forming secret societies mm. as well. Mm. Um, but um, also what she was exploring at this point in time was so radical that I can imagine that she might have thought, well, this will affect my professional work in that I won't be able to get jobs anymore because I'll be seen as a nutcase. Mm-hmm. Um, and although Kandinsky actually really fascinatingly did show alongside Hilmer F. Clint mm. in an exhibition in 1919, it was Hilmer's more conventional work at that point. And Kandinsky was beginning to, was by then exploring abstraction. We don't know it's so tantalizing we don't know what her thoughts were of Kandinsky's work but it wasn't as if there was um, a similar movement say to der Blauheiter or the other artist movements that Kandinsky was part of in Germany which was extremely radical at the time Hilmer was working in Stockholm there was one um, radical group there but they wrote into their charter that they would not allow women to be part of the group Um, you know so it was tough so I can imagine her just thinking, I don't need that. I don't need to be public about that. You know, I have my community of women and I feel safe and secure in expressing these ideas around, especially at first theosophy and then anthroposophy. Um, and I don't need that other stuff. She asked that her spiritual work not be shown for, what was it, 20 years after her death? So how do you explain, even after it's not affecting her career anymore, how do you explain that 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 she made of people looking at her art in the future? So she died, it it was an interesting time actually, and, and there's been much speculation about why she left this directive in her will. She actually didn't say that all of her work should be hidden. Mm. She had this sort of small booklet with these little reproductions that she made of her work. It's a bit like having some JPEGs or something in the 1940s. And she put them in a little book and she put a tick or a red cross, something like that, by each work that she didn't feel should be seen for 20 years. Now, I mean, there are lots of theories around why she left this directive in her will. One of them is that she died in 1944. Um, obviously, Europe was ablaze um, with this horrendous war. It's possible that if she allowed her work to be seen, then it would either be dismissed or destroyed or cast aside. People were very understandably very distracted at this point in time. And she was introducing a radical new language into the world. And perhaps she felt that she wanted the work to be introduced into the world at a more peaceful future moment Mm. where people wouldn't be so distracted. That's just a theory. Um, Another theory is that she felt that the world just wasn't ready for what she had to show it. And um, even though she stopped um, making work guided by her spirits after 1915, um, she still was in contact with her spirits right until her death in 1944. It's possible she had spiritual guidance um, about her work. And the spirit said, I mean, it is weirdly a bit prescient that basically she was saying that the 1960s would be open to her work, mm. which the 1960s, you can imagine, would be very open to her work, yeah. you know, when it's an era of, you know, everyone was looking to explore different ways of understanding the world. Right. Um, 
So, you know, we can only speculate. She left behind 27,000 pages of notebooks. I'm not exaggerating. It's 27,000 pages. And only a few people have read these in their entirety. And so there's still a huge amount of new knowledge coming out regularly about Hilma F. Clint. You know, we certainly haven't seen the back of her. And and, um, there's still a lot to discover about her motivations. And what was really interesting is that in her notebooks, you can see, I mean, I don't speak Swedish, but the bits that have been translated and also people at the Hilma F. Clint Foundation have told me that she's constantly questioning herself. Mm. She's saying, why have, what has motivated me to do this? Who is guiding me? What does it mean? What does the language I'm using mean? So, you know, she was questioning herself as well. That's so interesting, especially since a lot of our spiritual pursuits in general, they involve that degree of self-doubt mm. and it's a journey more than, you know, I, I find that that bolsters almost my view of her because mm. it's, you know, you hear somebody saying so definitively, like, this is, this is my, I, I don't know what the word I want is, like, if someone's writing a manifesto, right, mm. you, you get the sense that they've, they've got some ulterior motives sometimes to, mm. to pursuing the path that they're on. But that's so interesting that if she had doubts, and she mm. was on this journey, as well as now we're on a journey of discovering her and her motivations. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah, um, absolutely. Wow. Another curious fact about um, Hilmar F. Clint dying in 1944 mm. was that was also the year that Piet Mondrian and Vasily mm. Kandinsky also died. Huh. So there was a weird sort of communal passing on sure. of great innovators oh. in 1944. That is very interesting. It's almost mm. makes you wonder. Um, mm. So we've talked about there could be a lack of commercial success, uh, possibly if women are willing to kind of be upfront about the way that they're they're mm. interacting with the otherworldly in their creative pursuits. Are there any other ways that women pursuing the other side in their work has perhaps been a negative that you can think of? Well, I mean, it's it was very interesting that in 1979, um, Rosalind Krauss, you know, the great art theorist Rosalind Krauss wrote, you know, that for anyone to mention the spiritual in their work in the last 30 or 40 years, you know, would have been very destructive to you know, what they were trying to do. They would have been dismissed Mm. as, you know, the word you used before as being too woo-woo. I mean, just one example off the top of my head is um, I wrote an essay um, for Judy Chicago for Mm. the book that was published on the occasion of her, you know, major show at the New Museum that's on at the moment in New York. Mm. And, um, you know, I was really shocked to discover, like, in the 60s and early 70s when she was um, exploring various spiritual aspects to her work, you know, she was just, you know, she was so heavily criticized mm. by male critics. Mm. And, um, you know, her work was really dismissed because it wasn't seen as serious. Because what was seen as serious at that point was, you know, formalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, in America especially, there's been this clash between asking those questions and seeking to understand the world a bit better, but also secularism is such mm. an undercurrent to everything. Mm like I said, especially in America. Um, yeah, there is a sense that you need to be taken seriously if you're going to become a professional artist. And also, like you mentioned in The Other Side, something that stuck with me, that there are artists who balk at the idea of even having to, to write 
like a, an artist statement, a statement mm. of intention. Um, mm. So at the same time, we're demanding explanations from artists mm. on what motivates them. But if it's not something we deem as acceptable, I mean, in the past, especially now, I think things are a little bit more free. But in the past, if it's if the motivation doesn't jive, mm. <laughs> we're so quick to kind of write people off or to heavily criticize them. Yeah, that's so true. And actually, I it can be a problem that, you know, the artist statement now that that I really feel for a lot of artists who feel that they're expre- expressing what they have to express in their work. Mm-hmm. And then a gallery will say, well, we need an artist statement from you. And then they're forced to sort of reduce these complex, often contradictory, often unclear even to themselves, motivations for right. making something by going, my work deconstructs the hegemony, you know, it's all that sort of (laughs) dreadful language. But I think there's been a slight movement away from that now, which is great. That is great. Yes. I, because if Mm. the purpose of art for many people is a process and to seek to understand, then Mm. writing a statement of intention, I don't know. I've never Mm. been a fan. Um, Mm. But okay. So um, we've talked about him off Clint. Uh, Who is maybe your favorite artist to to talk about the otherworldly in connection to, or somebody from your book that you love, mm. you just love to highlight? Well, I mentioned her before, and I just think Georgiana Houghton is really remarkable. And I loved finding out about her. And when I first saw her work, I just could not believe it. Mm. And um, so just to sort of recap who she was, she was um, English. You, you see pictures of her. She's a very... Um, respectable Victorian lady you know she's got her she's um, got her corsets and her hair's done up tightly and you know she looks like you could look at sepia photographs of her there's nothing remarkable Hmm. except for one thing and she has a dagger in her hair (laughs) so yeah as soon as you google Georgiana Houghton this picture will come up and you'll you'll see the dagger and Hmm. that's a little indication that she wasn't all that she perhaps um set out to be in her picture. So she trained at art school. Uh, we don't know exactly where. We don't know much about her early life. Uh, she came from a large family and she was living in London. And um, she was very close to her sister, who was um, also an artist. And uh, as I mentioned, she had a large extended family. And then her sister died, which was really devastating to her. A bit like actually Hilma F. Clint, when Hilma F. Clint was 17 her 10-year-old sister died. Mm. And as I mentioned before, there's often a connection with grief to an interest in spirituality and and the other side. And um, anyway, she was already in her 40s, living a sort of genteel, respectable life in London. And actually at that time in the 1860s in London, um, what they called table turning and Mm. and, um, seances were sort of all the rage, almost seen as a parlour game. Right. Anyway, she was invited um, to her next-door neighbour, Mrs Guppy, uh, who was a spiritualist to a seance, and uh, at that point she was probably fairly sceptical. But she says um, that she discovered things in that seance that no one could possibly Mm. know. And so sort of overnight, she became a believer. And one of the really wonderful things about Georgiana Houghton, unlike so many artists from the past, she actually wrote an autobiography. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can get it for like a pound on, on Kindle. You know, it's really cheap. 
and you suddenly have, you know, 300 pages of a spiritualist in the 1860s or 70s, you know, explaining exactly what went on. And it's absolutely fascinating. Mm. So she trained as a spiritualist and then she started um, going to seances and then she started receiving messages from the other side. Mm. And, I mean, she had... I've forgotten how many there were, but something like 18 spirit guides, you know, from the unknown to like Michelangelo. You know, she was she was in tune with all of them. And in her book, she describes how in these seances she would um, feel damp because her nephew drowned and she would be covered in water. And then someone would take the uh, spirit would take the dagger from her hair and then there would be snow on the table and then she'd smell oranges, which are a rare fruit. I mean, it's sort of extraordinary what was going on. But under the guidance of her spirits, um, she started painting again. And these really are extraordinary pictures. Um, they're like swirling, colourful, abstract messes. I mean, one critic at the time called them like skeins of coloured wool mm. um, pulsating. Occasionally faces emerge from this sort of maelstrom of colour, like faces of um, Jesus or young women. Mm. Um, but... Really remarkably, she had an exhibition in London in the 1860s. And again, she was encouraged by her spirit guides to put on an exhibition. She hired a gallery in New Bond Street and she sat there with these remarkable paintings that no one ever would have seen anything like them before. And people flocked to them. And she was actually widely reviewed in newspapers. And surprisingly, there were quite a good few good reviews where the critics were going, I have no idea what's going on, but this is sort of fascinating. And others, of course, said that she was a lunatic. But, you know, I think I I write that it would have been like a spaceship landing amid the horses and carriages of Piccadilly. Sure. Wow. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it is fascinating to think about not just the the women creating these works of art, but how they would have been received Mm. and the reaction that would have just come from their contemporaries to them. So it's interesting you said that was in the 1860s that, mm, that exhibition yeah um so 100 years before the world got to see some mm. of Hilmoff Clint's exactly work. but fascinating the subject I was most excited to see included in the other side was Hildegard von Bingen who is mm. um a recently covered topic on art of history. She's our December mm. episode. Um, so you write that she's become something of a cult figure, not mm. just in art, but in music as well. And I think it's music mm. that is what draws many people to her. My podcast up till this point has focused primarily on the visual arts, just because that's, mm-hmm. you know, my background. Um, but the phrase, you know, works of art can include things from so many disciplines um, mm. besides, you know, pictures, paintings, illustrations, it's the it's Hildegard's music that drew you in, if I'm remembering mm. correctly. So what can you tell us about her and the way that she was including the spiritual? Yeah, well, um, she was a 12th century nun mm. and um, she was um, in Bingen in this German town um, and she rose up and became an abbess of the, you know, she ran the convent. But um, she was an extraordinary polymath. I mean, as you mentioned, she was a composer. She's actually the earliest named composer in history, which mm. is really interesting. It is. Um, uh, but even despite that, her name was not mentioned in the 1927 Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians huh. or the New Oxford Dictionary, uh, New Oxford History of Music, Volume 2 in 1954, which was the standard reference. Everything changed in 1981 when... 
who was it? Hyperion Records released mm. Christopher Page's Gothic Voices album, mm. um, and it was a feather on the breath of God, which is an incredibly beautiful title. Mm. And my mother gave me a copy of this when I was at art school in Australia, and I just, you know, and at that time I was quite interested in like sort of post-punk music and you know I went to a lot of bands and then I heard this music and I I felt I fell in love with it I thought mm. it was the most sublime calming you know it was it was a very uh, therapeutic sound for you know youthful me at art school mm. and so then yeah discovered that she was also a, a botanist um, she was a healer um, she was of course a preacher which is actually very unusual for 12th century nuns she yes. would have had to have got permission to you know be able to go out and and preach um the word of god she ended up becoming like an advisor to many of the sort of political heads of europe at the time um but she what was really fascinating was that she was also an artist and she received her visions um which she didn't admit um publicly admit for a long time because she was of course very worried about being branded a witch Mm. um but she was eventually given permission to talk about her her visions. And she never studied music, but she became a composer. She never studied art, but she became an artist. And so there's, you know, a famous uh, self-portrait, you could almost call it, by Hildegard, where it shows her receiving her visions, which come down from heaven like flames. And um, she's reciting her visions to a young um, priest who is recording them. Um, and, you know, I think she's very popular now because, um, you know, her compositions have never, you know, they're so beautiful and they're so nourishing and pure. Um, but her idea of veriditas or the greening of the earth, you know, she was a great um, believer in the healing power of nature, mm. for example. Um, and she also explored the world in what was a, a language that is still being sort of um, decoded um, mm. called her lingua ignota, her unknown language that she wrote from 1150 to 1160. Um, and it's unclear if she shared it with anyone. Um, but 900 or so of the invented words in the lingua ignota have been decoded as relating to botany and medicine and also the liturgy. Um, so she was just an extraordinary woman, mm. you know, at a time when, you know, women had again very little political agency absolutely and do we know anything about how hildegard would have been regarded by her contemporaries because her you know resurgence into the mainstream of our history it's pretty pretty modern it's pretty recent mm. um do we know anything about how she would have been regarded in her own time um yeah i mean she was very famous mm. in her lifetime um you know with um i think the range of her achievements Mm -hmm. um the brilliance of her um oratory skills um her wisdom in um her healing and also um her understanding of botany um i mean even the fact that she was given permission from the pope you know to tour around and preach was as i mentioned you know extremely unusual so no she was extremely revered and extremely respected and then you know like so many women in history she sort of dropped out of the you know limelight for Mm -hmm. for centuries until she was really rediscovered um partly due to the new age movement um Mm -hmm. you know who really embraced her as um a pre-modern visionary woman 
And yeah, you can definitely see why with her, not just the spiritual element, mm. but the healing through nature as mm. we've been more interested in wellness over the past mm. couple decades. Um, it's interesting, you know, the, the idea of rediscovering mm. these women, it's something you hear all the time that these women's work was rediscovered and it's, it's a shame mm. that we ever had to go through that, you know, dip mm. before we fully appreciate them. But the last name that I was excited to see included was that of Pamela Coleman Smith in your book. Mm. And it's just a small section. Um, and her, her name might not be familiar to many of us, but her images are so recognizable today mm. um, because she is the illustrator of the Rider Waite, um, sometimes called the Rider Waite Smith tarot deck today. Um, so really quickly, and this is a personal interest for me because I mm. am fascinated by the tarot, but what can you tell us anything about her and again that that idea of rediscovery and and the way that she was using the otherworldly as she kind of approached that project yeah pamela coleman smith is an absolutely you know fascinating uh, character uh, she was born in london in 1878 lived in jamaica in new york uh, where she studied at the pratt institute and when her mother died um, she returned to england for good in 1899 and uh, by all accounts, she was um, she was really fun. You know, people talk about her performing at parties and um, she illustrated 20 books, including a collection of poems by W.B. Yeats. Um, and his work, of course, was, you know, the famous Irish poet. His work is really rich in occult imagery. And um, he, in 1901, introduced her to um, the wonderfully named Isis Urania Temple of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, mm. which was a secret society operating in London in the 19th century. Um, and so she became very interested in the occult. And just to um, recap that, you know, occult simply means um, hidden language, not right. something creepy and sinister, which is often <laughs> the association um, with it. Um, and she opened a shop in London to sell prints and paintings. She started a magazine called The Green Sheaf. Uh, she travelled the country with a theatre group. And there's this wonderful photograph, if you look her up online, um, that was taken in 1912. Uh, she was Her nickname was Pixie, and she's got a very sort of pixie-ish face, and she's sort of got this cheeky smile on her face, and she's draped in um, uh, costume jewellery, and she's got a very sort of uh, flamboyant outfit on and ribbons in her hair, and, you know, she was a real character. In 1909, she was commissioned by a gentleman called A.E. Waite um, to design a tarot deck. And um, so tarot had become sort of was becoming more and more popular again. It had been very popular in medieval times and then in the Renaissance and then in the 18th century in France. And um, so he had the idea of creating a commercial tarot deck. And so she designed this wonderful um, deck. But for years, despite it becoming the best-selling tarot deck of all time, right. um, her name was left off it. So now her name, you know, Smith, is used in relation to to the deck. And sort of in in later years, because during most of her lifetime, it was called the Rider Waite deck, not the Rider Waite Smith deck. But she turned her back on um, sort of these secret orders and, and this occult knowledge. And she actually became a Catholic and mm. she moved um, to Cornwall, where she um, lived for the rest of her life. And mm. Yeah, she died in obscurity and, mm. and apparently um, very poor, which is very sad. Mm. Mm. That is interesting. Um, but as we've mentioned, you know, for many people, it's not about 
the fame that comes from dealing with the spiritual. It's about the journey and the personal journey and the personal nature of Mm -hmm. that. So absolutely fascinating. Um, That's what I loved about your book is that it's, it's not just a straight retelling of these women's lives. Mm. It's also, it touches on how it's not only personal to you, but yeah, just this journey that so many of us are on um, and how the visual arts are a way of expressing that for so many people. So I absolutely loved reading through it. Um, so oh, thank you so much. <laughs> for sure. Um, the other side, it is out now when this episode is airing. Um, mm-hmm. It's out now wherever you get your books. So I highly recommend picking that up. Jennifer, again, thank you so much for coming on. It was an absolute delight getting to chat with you. Oh, Amanda, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Once again, The Other Side is available right now wherever you get your books. I really do recommend it if, especially like me, you're looking for that re-examination of the art history that we all think we know really well, but with this really fascinating, entrancing narrative about these women's lives kind of woven in. We barely got to scratch the surface here, and once again, I've posted some supplemental images over on the Instagram, Art of History Podcast. And yeah, if you like what you see, imagine what Jennifer can do with an entire book. She's able to illuminate so much more of these women's lives and their stories and their motivations. Cannot recommend The Other Side enough. That's going to be it for me today. As always, feel free to leave me constructive, kind (laughs) feedback. You can send me a message on the Instagram or an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. I'm also open to suggestions on who we should feature in a future episode or or what or when, (laughs) I guess. Um, You know all the rest. Be sure to share this episode with a friend you think might enjoy it. Maybe your art teacher from middle school who you always think about but probably forgot you existed. Reconnect with them. It's 2024. (laughs) Um, Give us a nice review. It really does help get in front of new listeners. And with that, I hope you have an amazing new year. Happy 2024, by the way, if you're listening in real time. And I will see you in the next one. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.